You know, for most of us, the way we process our wants or our desires or our priorities or our ambitions, all is based on the simple question of, is it worth it? Is this worth it? So when we say we're processing something, what we're saying is we're often, you know, comprehending or contemplating its worth. The New York Times uh, a few years ago did a small article on this very idea. And what they did was present a three-functional relationship that helps identify whether something is worth it or not. And I actually have the screen, if we have the screen. So this is how they said it works. This is how you know if something is worth it or not. You check the cost, which to them is basically based on value. You check the utility, which is basically how active it would be in your life. And enjoyment makes sense, like just how much pleasure it will bring. So what they're saying is, whether we consciously know it or not, this is the sort of three-circled approach to how we find something's worth. Now, what's interesting is this is fine and dandy. Like if you guys are going to go today and buy a brand new car and you're going to use this three-circle functional process, rad. Use car, not use car, whatever it is. But the more I studied, the more I thought, the more I talked with people, it's fascinating that graphs like these are now used to, you know, they're employed to process the worth of Jesus Christ. In my time in pastoral ministry, the endless conversations I've had, which ultimately come down to, is Jesus worth it? Or is the church worth it? Or is reading the Bible worth it? There's often this, uh, what's in it for me? underpinning. What's in it for me? Where's the cost, the utility, and the enjoyment for my faith? And the consideration of worth or the framework of what's in it for me and the realm of Christianity would be quite an undertaking. And yet the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews does it masterfully. Collective church, for those or for us to right now cross the threshold into the land of Hebrews, where we're going to encounter over and over and again and again is the argument and the proof of the worthiness of Jesus in this life. So much so that when we finish the book, like if I could just put all my cards out on the table and we finish this book in like 18 years, when we finish this book, I'm hoping that we are pleading with the risen Christ, command me. We get to the point where we say, command me, ask of me, lead me, exhort me. So before we actually even read a word of this magnificent work, I want to cast a word of warning. I want to warn us before we step into the land of Hebrews by way of introduction. So bear with me as I lead up to our verses, because if I don't do this, Hebrews ain't going to make no sense, okay? Collective church, Hebrews, I say this now, is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the faint of heart. The author of this amazing work is a beast. If he was a Muppet, he would be animal. Like you guys got a Muppet framework, a theological Muppet framework? If you don't, get one. He's intense, he's dynamic, the the author is charismatic, the author is brilliant. And I mean, just to show you, there are 35 quotations to the Old Testament in just 13 chapters. Now, if anybody's here is thinking, so what? He opened up his app, like, or whatever. There was no, like, cross-referencing. There was no chapter-verse demarcation. 
For this author to have 35 quotations to the Old Testament within 13 chapters shows us that he has a deep, deep well of scripture that has been placed firmly in his heart. And because of that, Hebrews is like this masterful bridge builder. So when we step into Hebrews, it's gonna be like bridge building between the Old Testament and the New, from their cultures to ours, from then to now. And then even more practically, bridges that will be built from alienation to rest, from impatience to patience, from fear to faith, and from quitting to endurance. He's a master bridge builder. This is easily one of the most dynamic books in all of the Bible, which only irks and continues to irk historians since the second century that we have no idea who wrote it. We have no idea. It's, it's the Beowulf of the Bible. Beowulf, nobody knows the author. You get it. And whatever. Sure, people speculate. Luke, Barnabas, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, Philip, Saul, Silas, Paul. It could have been me. Like, whatever. Like, anybody. We don't know. The truth is we don't know, and we will never know. This author is a stranger. And it will remain that way. In fact, don't be caught off guard if I refer to him as the stranger throughout our talks. But what we sense from this book in its authorship is this, an incredible sense of urgency. Urgency, everything in this book is urgent. This stranger has got fire in their bones. So for those to read it or for those to study it or for those to apply it, it will be like looking into the sun. No, it's... Scratch it. It'd be like setting up an apartment or whatever on the sun. Like we were stepping onto the sun. It will be searing. These scriptures will be daunting. So it's sort of a, a yay for me, but these will be very daunting. Actually, I want to comfort us with some of these commentator, scholar quotes for those of us who care, because these are hilarious. The first one by William Barclay says, when we come to the letter to the Hebrews... We come to read what is, for the person of today, the most difficult book in the New Testament. Again, yay for me. Or how about this one? He, this one's awesome. Hebrews is a delight. Oh, oh, good. For those who enjoy puzzles. Oh, mm. Oh, and this one, this one, I couldn't find who actually wrote it, but basically everybody was quoting that this is considered the swamp of the New Testament. Hebrews is filled with hermeneutical alligators and, and mysterious toads and all sorts of fun things. So it really is, Hebrews is like, you know, the, the, the path to the Mordor Trail. It's like signing up for the Triwizard Games. It's a really, 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 really rich piece of chocolate cake. It's arduous, it's mysterious, it's confusing, it's epic, and it's so, so sweet. And it's very delicate. As one of my favorite Hebrew commentators did say, he said to ignore Hebrews and a great, is a great impoverishment of the soul. And the more you eat of it, the more you will see that it's far from a classic epistle, meaning it would be unwise to come and read Hebrews as you would come and read Galatians or Philippians. It has too many mass theological assumptions. The stranger's constantly like, oh, you'll get what I'm talking about. You'll get it. And he just goes on and he bulldozes right through. Now, don't get me wrong. It has epistle elements, but it's not a classic. It's also not a letter. It's also not like a doctrinal treatise. It's more than literature. It's indescribable in so many ways. But the best way to categorize this, if you want to write this down, or you want to write it in your Bible, would be 
a pastor's sermon. Hebrews is a pastor's sermon. Transcribed nonetheless, but a heated, searing, soaring, unique sermon. And just to even show you how unique it is in written form, a little fun fact, that 169 words found in Hebrews are found nowhere else in the New Testament. That's how different the stranger is. Now, hopefully we're wondering why. Why is this a puzzle-loving, arduous, delicate, unique swamp thing? Here's why. Because Hebrews sets out to challenge you and to challenge me. It's all about... You guys remember the Jigsaw Puppet from the Saw movies? I want to play a little game. That's what this is doing. I want to play a game. And what is the challenge? It has to do with worth. It has to do with what is better. It has to do with what is superior. But the question, how much is Jesus worth to you? No, no, it doesn't even challenge. It doesn't even present that. Hebrews shreds that like a wolverine and comes in grandstanding the supremacy of Jesus with such urgency and such intensity that it challenges us by proving. It doesn't ask the question. It challenges us by proving that he is worth everything, worth all of our time, worth all of our money, worth all of our love, worth all of our worship, worth all of our commitment. So the challenge then is presented. The stranger says, if that's true, let me make the point, live like it. Hebrews author is constantly saying, live like it. The stranger summarizes his entire 13 chapters into three words. This is something smart to do if you ever want to study the Bible. Most Bibles, or excuse me, more books within the Bible will have like a thesis statement verse. Hebrews has that. And it is this. It's Hebrews 13.22. This is his elevator pitch. This is his tweet or whatever. This is what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my what? Word of exhortation. That's it. That is the summary of Hebrews. It is a word of exhortation. The exhortation challenges us to grow up. It challenges me as a pastor to grow up, to mature, to press into this, to think, to commit, and mass, like, massively endure. Endure. But it does these in areas, and I'm just going to give a small foretaste of what to expect or what to be challenged in. These are some of the subjects it covers. You ready for this? Apostasy, spiritual drifting, salvation, Moses. Oh, I can't wait to talk about Moses. Angels, that being next week. You ever curious about angels? We're going to get nuts about angels next week. It goes off about marriage, the devil, endurance, church community, leadership, faith and doubt, the Bible and its purposes, and Old Testament, New Testament correlation, and so much more. Hebrews makes a case for everybody to get extreme. But like extreme, like where the first letter E's not in it. It just starts with X type of extreme. <laughs> so if you're here and a Christian and have been in the middle or on the fringe, you're going to hate this book. You're going to hate it. And you're going to, again, I'll just say it, it is not for the faint of heart. Collective church discipleship groups, I was going to speak directly to you. If you are not on our reading plan, you are, uh, or you will not continue to be in our reading plan going into the book of Hebrews, I'll just say you're gonna miss out. You are going to miss out the study and the application and to live out what it means to be a part of this in the most full holistic way. Okay, so with that, 
Book of Hebrews chapter one, I hope everybody has it open. Hebrews opens like that of Genesis and the gospel of John, which we read a little bit last Easter, meaning it starts in the beyond, which by doing so sets our navigational course for the entire book, but also gives us the context and how it'll explain the most important truth of mankind, which is the gospel. It's gonna be a different take on the gospel than I think a lot of us probably even realize. So starting in verse one, we're gonna crack this baby open and just let it ooze out. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through wisdom. Also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Oh, it's a rich piece of chocolate cake. Did you notice that there was no salutation? There was no greeting. There is no, this is Paul, greetings. There's none of that. The Hebrews, the stranger opens up the plane door and he kicks us in the booty and he says, see ya. And he just kicks us out. And by doing so, what you just read is considered, get this, the most well-written Greek sentence in the entire Bible. I would venture to say the most well-written Greek sentence ever. People look at these four like, verses, this one sentence, and they're flabbergasted how anybody could be so poetic, so direct, and beautifully, just masterfully put this together. You just read that. And even though our modern translation has it in four verses, it is a singular sentence, which orbits the theme of this. God has spoken. If you have a journal with you, if you have a tattoo machine with you, like just write it on you, whatever you gotta do, God has spoken. So if there's no greeting and it's unusual, we must ask why? If you're anything unusual, we always got to go, oh, why? Why is that there? Why start the sermon this way, stranger? Because the original audience then would have heard, who would have heard this would have been Jewish Christians. They chose to leave Judaism and Hebrew tradition and to believe in Christ as Messiah, meaning no more sacrifices, no more temple, stuff they've done their entire life. They're not doing it, but there's no more priest mediator of man between them. But as time pressed on, somewhere close to 60 to 70 AD when this was written, before the destruction of the Jewish temple, these second generation Jewish Christians started to get what? Pressured. They started to get persecuted. Even small social persecutions. Like you don't, you don't really believe in that Jesus jambalaya, do you? You don't actually go to that church, do you? Some of you can attest to those type of conversations. And so the strangers communicating the sermon to these people who are wondering, is it worth it? All they're doing is wondering, is this really worth it? Is Christianity worth it? They feel that this ever-present God is what? Absent. A feeling many of us have felt or maybe even feel today, right now, this moment. See, when you're going, what we're going to see, Collective Church, is that the original audience is a lot like this audience. A lot. 
the similarities, the diversities, the urban setting. Hebrews talks so much about cities and the longing to experience the reality of the living Jesus. We want to experience it. You talk to people all over Los Angeles, all over the West Side. I want to experience it. Because at that time, they felt anything but God's intervention. They didn't feel any of it. C.S. Lewis, if you haven't read his book, uh, A Grief Observed, it's basically his journal entries when his wife passed away. They're the most gut-punching journal entries you'll ever read. They're dark, they're heavy, they're real, they're brutal. brutal. So he wrote in his journal as his wife, I think he calls her H in the book, has died, passing away. He writes this, C.S. Lewis, remember. He goes, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are, are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But, 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 go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside after that silence. This is Narnia man writing this. Silence. I know firsthand when we experience discomfort on any scale, small scale to Lewis scale, we believe that God has failed us. Well, this, this is wrong. God, you failed because you have not intervened. This could have been avoided, God. And because of that, because he didn't answer the way we expected, then guess what? God is absent or God is silent. So if or when a, I moan, I'll pick on me, if I moan or criticize that I'm not hearing the voice of God or I get frustrated that he does not speak in the ways I want, think about this. What am I really saying? I'm saying that God hasn't spoken enough. Here's where the stranger offers his first exhortation. He says God has spoken, meaning God is not silent. Not only has God spoken, he's done it, what did the verse say in many times, many ways. I'm going to just run these off from Genesis one, where God spoke this world into existence to dreams, visions, direct communication, object lessons, burning bushes, storms, thunders, angels, scripture, his still small voice, church community, the Holy Spirit, law, history, parables, preachers, poetry, prophets, kings, priests, and so much more. God has been intervening, the stranger says, since the beginning. Since the beginning, dear Hebrews, dear collective church. So for any of us to say that God is absent or God is silent, does that mean that we've exhausted every channel of God's word? Does that mean we've studied and sought till our noses have bled? Of course not. And we're fortunate enough, we're fortunate enough, us here right now to have complete revelation. Meaning back then God revealed himself in bite-sized chunks. God did like baby food-sized spoon feeds in your mouth. God was like the mom with the airplane sound. Like that's what God did. God has given what's called a progressive revelation, a progressive revelation of himself and of his will. 
What does that show us from times past long ago? That no one person or prophet has ever received a complete picture of God. Only fragments. Now this freaks some people out. If there's some seminary people in here, people way smarter than me, Isaac, whatever, this might freak some people out. Because the idea that God has progressed means that God is changeable? No, 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 no. The idea that God has progressed, what I'm not saying, here's what I'm saying, it's simply this. It's the distinction is not in the nature of the truth, but in the amount of it and in the timing of it. So if we would never, like God has spoken in pieces, so we would never give like our four-year-old Tolstoy's war and peace. Never. Good luck. What do we give them? A, B, C, and D. These many times and many ways it's talking about are the ABCs of God's self-revelation. And yet, still even with that, man was incapable of comprehending or identifying or understanding God in its fullest, in his fullest. So God then does what? He just invades. God invades, not as a book, not as a pamphlet, not as a Broadway play, but in the only form we could possibly understand. Look at verse two. But in these last days, that being from the days of Christ to the end of existence, he has spoken to us, how? By his son. This is such a, 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 a mighty saying because it's not just that God spoke, but it's what he spoke. So it's God's final word. It's God's final word, like a killer recipe for rigatoni. No, God's final word is Jesus Christ. The most reliable message, the most reliable communication of God is Jesus. So not only has God spoken, he puts a the end on it and the grammatical period is Jesus. Friends, the stranger, by starting this way within this perfect Greek sentence, are we picking up on the, the, mag, you know, the magnitude of this? What he does is he doesn't place Christ in a crib in a manger in Bethlehem. He doesn't put Christ on a donkey. He doesn't put Christ in a ship calming storms. He doesn't put Christ on a cross. He doesn't even put Christ in our squishy little pumping hearts. But makes Christ the context for God's grand opus. He is the context for God's entire redemptive plan. Christ is God's access for creation to new creation. Long ago, it says, we were fragmented about the knowledge of God. Now in these last days, we are unencumbered. Christ is, the, is this dawning. Christ is this dawning. So as much as Jesus is understood in dust and in flesh and in blood and in dirt, as we saw leading up to Easter, he must now be seen in the center of history's meta-narrative. Another New Testament letter only drives us further home. I'll read it to you. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is very, very high level theology, collective church. If we do not get Jesus right, we get everything else wrong. Everything. 17th century Blaise Pascal philosopher describes it this way. 
Not only do we not know God except through Jesus Christ, we do not even know ourselves except through Jesus Christ. What if that was some of the issues, Christians, with some of these identity things, some of these things we're struggling with was the fact that we have misplaced or misunderstood this identity portion of God or of Jesus Christ. What if that's what's messed with us? Stupid story, but years ago, I'll never forget. Some of you know, I used to be a school teacher for like sixth to seventh to eighth graders. <laughs> I was gonna say it right now, I'm gonna confess. You don't want me teaching school. You do not want me teaching global science to students. It's ridiculous. Courtney's nodding her head as a school teacher. She gets it. Don't make Casey teach science to kids. So when I signed up and I got this job, they're like, can you do all this type of stuff? You know how to do it. And this was years ago. And I was like, yeah, yes, yes. So the worst problem about this was, I don't know how to do grade percentages. I don't know if a kid got, you know, something on a massive test or a book report, how to give him a grade. So I just started guessing their grades. I thought, well, this kid's kind of cool. I'm going to give him a B. And I started doing that. It was so bad. I'd have to sometimes go home and like Emily, my wife, figure out his grade percentage. But if like, I like the kid, like, all right, he's cool. If the kid was a jerk, he's going to get a C. Like that's how I based everything. I'll never forget one day, the boss, his name was Mr. Maestri, calls me in. He's called the headmaster. And he's just like, he literally goes, slides me page to paper. And he goes, show me how to do a grade percentage. You just carry the fraction, Mr. Maestri, and you add the nucleus. Like, whatever, I don't know what it was. I should not be teaching school. I got in a lot of troubles, needless to say. Such a stupid story to say this. This is not what the stranger does or he seeks to do in Hebrews. Meaning he doesn't just say it. Oh yeah, I'm a teacher. He doesn't just say it. He gives Jesus' resume and his credentials to prove he is worthy, to prove that Jesus knows how to do grade percentages. That's what's happening. And what he does for the rest of our verses, he gives eight points. Eight points. And we're going to work through them fairly quickly. The one about angels, which is the last one, will be next week, so bear with me. But these are going to be unpacked the rest of the time in Hebrews. So I'm just going to hit them. But I want everybody to understand, they're going to be throughout Hebrews. This is it. This is, these are eight things that is truly, well, it's transformative. Okay, so all I can say is we're about to go into these eight things that they list out. All I can say is this is powerful, powerful stuff. And as a Bible teacher, as I sat on, at my desk this past week, and there's these temptations to try to like, how creative do I make this? Like what alliteration could I give? Ew, gross. Like how do I do this? What sermon illustration could I possibly give to wrap these up? There's no need. It was impossible. And that was a stupid temptation on my part. These eight towers are so critical that to not even believe half of one is to disbelieve Christ in his entirety. It's all or it's zilch. Remember, Hebrew forces us to get extreme, knowing that our endurance or us taking responsibility, taking responsibility in this Christian life is going to be into direct proportion to the clarity with which we see Jesus. I'm just gonna say that one more time because I hope that sinks in. Knowing that our endurance or us taking responsibility in this Christian life is going to be in direct proportion to the clarity with which, with which we see Jesus. So I wanted to call them the hateful eight, but that didn't make any sense. And then I thought about the grateful eight and then I hated myself for like two weeks. 
And then I couldn't come up with anything and then three buckets of KFC later and here we are. (laughs) So the last thing I'll say before we get into these is this. This is the stranger's thesis statement on why Christ is more than worthy. This is it, these eight things. He goes, no, this this is his credentials on why Christ is more than worthy for our lives. So let's read. Verse two, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Has anybody received an inheritance before? Okay. Obviously in our culture, it's this idea that once somebody passes on, we receive a possession from somebody's death of some kind. An estate, money, whatever it could be. Whatever it could be. I remember when my grandpa died, I got like a box full of coasters. I inherited coasters from different bars he was at. So it's, but that is not how the New Testament uses this word. To be an heir was to be invested with everything. And scripture is being invested with everything. So what he's just saying is, the stranger saying is, the son is given everything that God has. As if Christ came to inherit an estate, but except that estate was God's status and God's authority. So if you want to, you can write a little, you know, status and authority next to you in your Bible where it says the word heir. But imagine reading this as a Jewish individual then, or maybe even now. It's so heinous for what they're saying. It's so heinous. It's literally like saying Nickelback has all authority and status of God. We would go, what? No, no, we would do not Nickelback. It's that heinous. The stranger knows that. And rather than slowing down, the stranger speeds up to number two, verse two again, through whom also he created the world. So you can write this down, that Jesus was just assigned divine function and ability. Function and ability. Number three, and this one is my favorite out of the eight. He is the radiance of the glory of God. How many times in a day do we use the word glory? Like I must call a grilled cheese glorious or good beer glorious, like way too much in a day. This was glorious. But glory throughout scriptures was something that would fry you. It would sear you. It was fiery. It would burn. People would fall down dead in the presence of his glory. Moses in the Old Testament, who we're going to get into a couple of weeks, Moses in the Old Testament, holy smokes, he was constantly like bothering God. Let me see your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Let me see your glory. And he was constantly, and finally God says, fine, just to get a hot minute. Like, just fine. And God shows Moses just this like, fraction, this remnant, this dazzle, this faint. Like if you turn your phone's light brightness all the way to the bottom, that's how much he shows him of his glory. And Moses' just skin radiates. He has to wear a veil. It's just an incredible beauty. It's this incredible moment. And he's literally exposed to this God's glory. Now, to see that, that same glory at its highest level of brightness, the stranger says, look into the eyes of Jesus. So what only could be a fraction back then. Here we have the stranger saying, he is the full radiance. He is the highest level of dazzle, of brightness. Look into his eyes. And I know with like church, and especially if you don't come to church a lot, or maybe you don't follow Jesus, I know that this can sound a lot like spiritual talk. You know, Christianese, religious gobbledygook, glory and radiance. But that would be a blunder to interpret that way. It's his glory which can change us. It's his glory. 
I wanna read you this part from 2 Corinthians chapter three, another New Testament book. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. If we collective church learn the art or the discipline of the rhythm of affectionately gazing at Jesus, it would change us and it would change you. My wife's going to hate that I say this and she's probably even going to hate that she hates even more that I do this, but I just find myself staring at her, like gazing at her, not creepily behind a bush. Like I'm not freaking out, but I, I just notice in those moments, it, I'm just changed by this gazing of my wife. I have perspective, I grow in gratitude and I fall deeper and deeper in love. And if that can happen on a human level, how much more on a divine level? For some of us, what if this is what is missing to longingly gaze upon Jesus? And it's in that gazing to know this and to rest in this, number four, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power that without him, everything would vaporize into nothing. So this, is, this removes this whole like deist-like approach that God creates and walks away. No, no, Jesus creates and sustains. If he stops, we stop. Jesus is the great preservation. And then number five, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is not an image of like Christ is sitting down to rest because he's exhausted after the resurrection. This is Christ. This is an image of Christ sitting down to reign as royalty. The other day I was reading that our solar system has a diameter of 7.5 billion miles. So if you got a car and started driving at 65 miles an hour to get across the solar system, you know how long that would take you? 13,000 years or 330-something lifetimes. That's just our solar system. We all know, and it's so funny, I'm talking, I'm teaching science right now. (laughs) We all know that there are over 100 billion solar systems in the Milky Way and that 50 billion galaxies in the known, you know, universe. And I just was reading these things about Jesus. I was reading his credentials and I thought it was ironic and humorous and blasphemous that we invite Christ who upholds and reigns over the universe to be our co-pilot. Are you kidding me? Verse three, and the exact, the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint, you'll love this if you guys want to Bible nerd it out. Get this, in its original language, it's the word character. Exact imprint means the word character. Jesus is the exact type. He's the exact character of God. And if we were to take a stroll, or excuse me, if we were to take a scroll and we put hot wax on it, and then we were to seal it and you were pressed a metal stamp into it, that is exactly what this means. Jesus being the hot wax, God being the stamp. So, or you could say it this way. God is Jesus-shaped. God is Jesus-shaped. I always bring this up, but it's worth, because it's some brain-melting stuff, because it helps get us in our understanding that if we want to know how God would chew food, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God's opinions are on marriage and sexuality, you listen to Jesus. If we want to know where God or how God would treat the homeless or the marginalized, we look at Jesus. 
God is Jesus-shaped. Remember, up to this point, it's as if God has been sending like charcoal sketches of himself to mankind. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and it's like somebody handed him a Blu-ray high def, this is God. Or if there's flickers of light known about God up to this point, Christ comes and it's like the sun rises for the very first time. This is the dawning of a new beginning. So we're gonna wrap it up with these, but I really wanna read this intense quote, which I've read probably way too many times from this pulpit, but it's so shocking. It's so hard hitting from N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright, that it it helps give us understanding. He says, how can you cope with the end of a world and the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That the fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. This is so big, this next part, I encourage us to pay attention. He says, most of us unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. There's nothing more dangerous than the shallow world in between. Do you know what the difference is between a shallow world or a deep world? Between dark and the dawn? It's the conviction that God spoke. This means God, by speaking, has made himself knowable, known, vulnerable, and personal. So the question that we're going to end with this morning is, are we listening? Is there anything more challenging for us than listening? True listening requires a response. Hearing can be passive. Am I listening? Are you listening? Or am I open to being exhorted? Is this community open to be exhorted? Am I, am I open to being challenged? Am I listening to his gracious, kind, patient, superior calls for my marriage, for my child rearing, for my dating, for my sex life, for my career, for my sin? Am I taking responsibility with my faith and in the church? Would you let us pray for you today in regards of that? Would you let us? There's gonna be people up against the side between those trees and in front of the shelves right there who would love to pray for you. They're wearing a lanyard, go to them. They're some of the most incredible people. They want to pray for you today. So if you're saying, I'm not listening to God, I know I'm not listening, go to them, allow them to intercede in prayer for you. Hebrews, Hebrews opens like this. If you guys remember, God has spoken, has spoken, but you know how it ends? You guys have any idea how Hebrews ends? Hebrews 12, 25 says this. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Are we listening, collective church? Let's pray.